Podcastle, episode 399, for January 19th, 2016. The Authenticator, by Greg Van Eekout. Rated PG-13. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is The Authenticator, by Greg Van Eekout. It's set in the universe of his California Bones fantasy trilogy, and first appeared in Flytrap in 2014. Now, if you've ever tried to write a short story, you know just how hard it is to write a good one. It's even harder to write an exquisite one, and hardest of all is to write an almost perfect one. For my money, today's tale flirts with perfection. Of course, your mileage may vary, degustibus non est disputandum, chasunas on goo, voidware prohibited by law, and all that, but overall I'm really impressed by how much today's story manages to get done in under 3,000 words. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll just talk more about that later. Greg Van Eekout is the author of stories and novels for adults and middle grade audiences. His work has been nominated for the Nebula, Andre Norton, and Locus Awards. His most recent work is the Daniel Blackland trilogy from Tor Books, of which California Bones is the first, followed by Pacific Fire and Dragon Coast. The Authenticator takes place in the Daniel Blackland universe, as did The Osteomancer's Son, which Podcastle released as Episode 8 all the way back in 2008. 2008. Have we really been doing this that long? That is insane. Anyway, the story is read by Gregory Austin, who balances time between writing and voice acting in Buffalo, New York. As a writer, he's contributed to various comedic websites, including collegehumor.com. He enjoys sandwiches, comics, and genuine people. Enjoy the story. The Authenticator by Greg Van Eekhout My face surprises her when she opens the door to her trailer, but I'm not surprised by hers. I know what I look like. I've got the best nose money can buy, but rubber's no match for bone and flesh. I used to wear glasses so the frames would cover the seam where the nose meets the little bit of bridge I have left. But glasses are a pain in the butt since I lost my ears. So I don't bother with them anymore. Mrs. Bradford? I say. I use my most charming smile, which is still pretty charming. The tension in her shoulders releases, and she offers me a handshake. I return it with my left hand, which has the most fingers. It's Edel. As long as you're Barton Mink, and not some brush salesman. She smiles with her mouth and her eyes, and steps back to let me in. Now it's my turn to be surprised. The homes of thrift shop queens no longer faze me. I've met collectors and pack rats and hoarders, and I've seen walls so covered by commemorative dishes and tobacco-stained oil paintings that you couldn't find so much as an inch of plaster between them. But Edel Bradford's trailer is something else. It's a cave of bone. The walls are a mosaic of leg bones and knuckles and teeth and knobby bits. More of the same in curio cabinets, 
mixed in with the pots and pans in the kitchen. Everywhere my eye falls. The bones are stained dark, coffee brown, the color of bones from the La Brea tar pits, the richest source of magic bones in Los Angeles. I have to duck under a chandelier of ribs to enter the room, and I am not a tall man. Her coffee table is an arrangement of tusk with a plywood slab on top. She offers me a cigarette from a pack beside an ashtray, fashioned from the crown of a skull. Do you mind if I? she asked when I decline. Not at all. A suspicious squint. It won't mess with your ability to smell? I thought that's what you guys relied on. Magic has very distinct smells. I can filter out the non-osteomantic ones. The squint doesn't go away entirely, and she puts the pack down without taking a cigarette. I breathe and try to take it all in. I smell her unfiltered palm cigs, and chamomile, bacon, windowsill dust warmed from the sun, Edel's lilac perfume, and somewhere in this mess, a cat. But not magic. Magic is a finite resource, because the bones of extinct magical creatures are a finite resource, and the bones I'm seeing don't come from osteomantic creatures. Moving along a wall, I see dog, cat, possum, squirrel, chicken, pigeon, rat, coyote, epoxy, and wood. I turn to give Edel the bad news, but she waves a hand at me like she's swatting a fly. I know it's all a bunch of junk. I never spent more than ten crowns on any of it. I just like the way they look is all. When I was a girl, I used to think this is what castles look like. And I don't care what nobody says. I like my castle. Okay. The trailer seems warmer now that I know she isn't deluded about the value of her counterfeit bones. On the other hand, I fought through an hour of canal traffic to get here. And it'll be rush hour by the time I head back. And I still have to pick up my suit from the dry cleaner for my date tonight with the violin dealer I met at an auction last week. We bonded when we caught each other both trying not to smirk at the auctioneer's excessive gavel-banging. So what can I do for you, Edel? She installs me on the bench seat of the breakfast nook in the corner of her kitchenette, impresses a cup of tea on me, and retrieves a small object from the back of her spoon drawer. She sets a dime-sized coin made from carved horn atop the peeling laminate table surface. Hmm. I slip on my white cotton gloves with most of the fingers snipped off so they don't just dangle uselessly and put on a headband with magnifying glass and lamp affixed to it. One side of the coin has the hierarch's wings and tusk emblem. The other is a face in profile, worn away to little more than a chin and a nose, which is almost more face than I have. Bone coins were popular in the mid-1800s, before the hierarch unified Southern California into a single realm and regulated the magic trade.
Back then, money and magic were literally the same thing. Maybe they still are. Wealth gives you comfort and luxury. It gets you sex. It gets you access to better doctors. Money buys you influence. The ability to exert your will over that of another and make people say and do what you want them to do. How is money different than magic? I'm not sure it is. Magic is maybe a purer form of money, but it takes money to acquire magic. I give the coin a good sniff and sense newness, freshness, the impression of the early sun and dew on a virgin day. It smells like magic. I'm a professional magic authenticator, and I start to feel a little jazzy about things. How'd you come by this, Edel? Edel settles in and holds forth. She has a nail-file voice and the flair of someone who's told the same story for years, and she's put effort into perfecting her delivery. I like listening to her. She found the coin eight years ago at the Cerebral Palsy Foundation thrift shop, which used to be in a Quonset hut in Long Beach down by the Cranes. Her hairdresser broke her leg and was down in the dumps because she couldn't work, and Edel was looking for something to cheer her up. She ended up with an oil painting of a rodeo clown getting chased by the bull. And the idea was her hairdresser was the rodeo clown. And the bull was, you know, life. Because you can clown around all you want and run from your troubles. But that bull always gets you in the end. That's Edel's philosophy. And it's also a joke. So she gets the painting home and she's dusting the frame before giving it to the hairdresser. When she notices the corner of the frame is coming apart and she looks close and realizes there's something stuck between the frame and the canvas. The coin? I ask. You got it, Mr. Mink. And I didn't know what it was, but I had a hunch it wasn't a chunk of raccoon pelvis. She flutters her hands in the air, indicating her bone decor. So first thing I do is get the phone book. And the first name I find is Abrams Osteomantic Appraisals. Abrams. Of course, Abrams. I sip tea to cover anything that might be showing up on my face. What did Mr. Abrams tell you? He said it was definitely fossilized horn. Probably from the La Brea tar pits. And maybe... Unicorn. That was pretty hopeful of him. Other than Hydra Regenerative, there is no more powerful medicinal magic than Unicorn. Unicorn cures cancers and weak hearts, and heals grievous wounds, and even restores missing limbs. She watches my reaction. I used to have a good poker face, but after the fire drake job, I'm not really sure what my face is doing anymore. Did Mr. Abrams give you an appraisal? He said he couldn't. Not without knowing who dug up the bone, and where it came from, and what so-and-so carved it into a coin, and who bought it from which what, and so on. Right down the line. Until it ended up in my old claws. Provenance, I say, trying to be helpful. 
we determine authenticity through physical analysis by comparison to proven authenticated specimens by actually using the magic contained in the osteomantic fossil and by provenance so that presents us with some problems in your case the physical properties of your coin are interesting but inconclusive it smells like magic but that can be faked also there is no known other horn of this type to compare it to the best way to test authenticity is to actually use the magic but magic's a consumable to test it someone would have to eat it and thus destroy it so that leaves us with provenance you got it from a thrift shop i don't suppose you have any documentation i got this she shows me a receipt for the rodeo clown painting disappointing mr abrams is a very skilled authenticator i say trying to break it to her gently he's also an honest man she is not convinced oh is he most people i've asked to look at my horn won't even give me three seconds of their time wilted old hag like me wanting to show them a unicorn horn i found in a clown painting from the cerebral palsy foundation thrift shop but abrams he tells me my unicorn's probably fake but he offers me a million crowns for it anyway she laughs a nicotine ravaged alto you should have taken the money edel a million crowns she gives me a contemptuous look if my unicorn is real how much is it worth i'm not an appraiser i'm an authenticator give it your best shot mr mink i sigh and give it some thought real unicorn horn preserved in the tar pits it'd be priceless edel still not satisfied she presses nothing's priceless a van gogh isn't priceless come on mink find your balls and give me a number i can see why she's been kicked out of a lot of shops 50 million minimum but that's with provenance comparable bone proof that it's not just magic but unicorn magic none of which you have i'm afraid you should have taken the million i don't care about money she says steel in her eyes it's the principle of the thing i have real unicorn but nobody thinks a dish rag like me is smart enough to know what she's got nobody thinks someone like me could possibly find something so precious they laugh and lord their magical pedigrees over me they think they're doing me a favor by offering me pittance a million crowns is not a pittance i know what a million crowns is not interested i'm 73 i smoke how i haven't broken a hip is beyond me i honestly thought she was 10 years older what would i do with 50 million or a million or a half million it's all the same to me i want people to recognize the value of what i've got she pauses searching for understanding in my obliterated face 
What would you do in my place, Mr. Mink? I suppose you'd sell it for a fraction of its true value? I measure magic by crowns and cents. Edel measures it by the respect she's never been afforded, an old woman living in a crummy Long Beach trailer park. Outside her little kitchen window, cranes lift cargo from boats and move cargo onto boats. The warehouses here used to be stuffed with crates of magic. Dragon turtle bones from China, kraken spines, Pacific fire drake, smilodon, mammoth, Sierra griffin. Now it's electronics and paper for the boxes they come in. There's really not much more for us to talk about. She tells me a funny story about how her hairdresser friend broke her leg, tripped on a bowling ball. I finish my tea, we shake hands, and I leave her disappointed, but with her pride intact. And I crawl through the floating market beneath molded plastic globes, made to look like paper lanterns. And I pick up my suit, and return to my tidy, clean-smelling apartment. What would I do in her place if I was offered good money for something I was sure was worth so much more? Why else would Abrams have offered her a million? He doesn't get much work anymore. To raise that kind of money, he'd have to sell everything he had, probably borrow from dangerous people, with no way to pay them back. A huge gamble for Abrams, and one he couldn't afford not to take. Removing my nose, I look in the mirror and can only think about what I'm willing to do in my place. Idel keeps the bone in a kitchen drawer with her spoons. I could hire some kid to break into her place. I could do it myself. I got half a face and six fingers, counting on both hands. And she is an old woman with weak lungs and a calcium deficiency. I could have the unicorn tonight. I should take a shower before my date with the violin dealer. Instead, I make a phone call to an old broker friend of mine. Otis, it's Barrett Mink. I have some stuff to sell. A lot of stuff. Three days later, I'm back at Edel's apartment, this time with a briefcase. She invites me in. I duck under the chandelier of ribs, take a seat at the same place in her kitchen, put the briefcase on the table, pop the locks. Don't bother, she says, pushing a teacup at me and blowing steam across her own. Not unless there's fifty million crowns in there. I don't have fifty million crowns, Edel, but I have some investments in magic bone I've accumulated over the years. Griffin, wyvern, basilisk, small bones, but of very fine quality. And some stocks, and some gold and cash reserves from an insurance settlement. I don't know if your unicorn coin is authentic or not, but there's 2,603,000 crowns in this briefcase. It's my final offer. My only offer, because I literally don't have another cent. The pulse in my temples is so strong, I wonder if Edel can hear it through my ear holes. She gives me a sympathetic smile that breaks my heart. I'm asking you again, Mr. Mink. It could be worth fifty million, and I don't care about money. You're offering me two million and change. What would you do? I'm not a man who carries wisdom up his sleeve, 
I don't have a philosophy or a moral compass that I've ever bothered to put into words. I just have a life of experiences. Some sweet, some beautiful, and a few pretty awful. I tell her the most awful. Mr. Abrams and I were partners, I began. Seven years ago, he acquired a bone from an old osteomancer who needed quick cash. Abrams thought it was dragon, and I agreed. Exciting enough, because even the sliver he bought, about the size of a snapped-off pencil lead, was a year's income for both of us. Where Abrams and I differed was he thought he had Pacific Fire Drake, an ancient molten creature whose remains were so rare that only one in a thousand authenticators ever comes across it. If it was Pacific Fire Drake, it was a king's fortune. Now, the way to test for dragon is to take a tiny sample of it, not much more than a grain of sand, and expose it to open flame. Authentic dragon bone will give you a nice big whoosh of fire, so you have to be careful. And I was careful. I'm a professional. I took all the precautions a good authenticator takes for testing dragon, but not good enough for testing Pacific Fire Drake. My fingers, my ears, my nose. A lot of stuff I keep under my clothes. It must have been painful, Edel says with sympathy, but not pity. I do like her. It was exactly like burning to death only not quite all the way. But that's not why I want your coin, Edel. Mr. Abrams' daughter kept the books, and she was in the office next door. When the fire drake flame had enough of me, it went after her. Edel looks into her cup until the tea is cold. You believe my unicorn is real? I don't, actually, but there's a chance it is. A chance. I'm willing to gamble. She looks at my briefcase. It doesn't contain all the money in the world. Just all the money in mine. You asked me what I would do if I had real unicorn, Edel. Well, I wouldn't sell it. Not for a million. Not for fifty million. Not for one hundred and fifty million. We learn to bear the wounds we suffer. But how do we bear the wounds we inflict? Your unicorn is priceless. In a realm that includes the La Brea Tar Pits, with such a rich foundation in magic, an authenticator of osteomancy is an obscure but important person. My father was an authenticator, as was his mother before him. I've been around magic and wealth all my life. I've passed judgment on bones for studio heads, for tycoons, for barons and dukes. And once, for the hierarch himself, I know what power looks like. Edel doesn't look away from me, brave enough to face my pain. And I look at her, this little woman with tobacco-stained fingers, with a smoker's rasp and osteoporosis, this woman with the ability to grant and deny. She goes to her spoon drawer, I believed I'd seen power before. I believed I'd understood it. Right now, with creases channeled in her face and old, proud eyes, 
as she puts the coin in the palm of my ruined hand. Edel is the most powerful creature I have ever beheld. And welcome back. I hope you liked that story as much as I did, and I wanted to share some of the reasons that I thought it was really just so great. Um, my favorite part, from a technical standpoint, was how we started with a narrator who was scarred. Um, I mean, just within the first paragraph we learned that, but we didn't know how or what had happened. And then during the course of the story, we not only learned what had happened, but also how the action he was taking in the story was intending to help him uh, heal from those wounds. Uh, I thought the setting is unique and creative, and yet perfectly familiar. And the stakes are very clear and concise and relatable, and the writing, of course, is just magnificent. The story doesn't have one superfluous word in it. And, even though it's part of a larger story cycle, you don't need to know anything about the other stories to enjoy it. It stands alone perfectly. Now, here's Khalida Muhammad Ali for the episode feedback. Khalida? Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode number 389, Old Foss and the Name of His Cat by David Sandner. Comments for this episode were quite a delight to read. Boojums Are Cool showed gratitude with, Thank you, Podcastle. The combination of David's wonderful story and Graham's well-done narration gave me a half hour of awesomeness today. And Blinking had this to say, I love nonsense poems and rhymes. I'm most familiar with Lewis Carroll, and I have heard the poem at the end of The Runcible Spoon. Usually, stories that hit on dementia connect solidly with me after losing a few grandparents to Alzheimer's. For some reason, this one just didn't connect with me, even though I felt like I should have been the target audience. I had trouble immersing in it, and I'm really not sure why. Dwango said, Just a wonderful tale. It took a bit to get into, but the friendship of the cat and Lear really was a fascinating one. The question of how one dies and who should choose the when and how of it added some depth to the flightful tale. Who should say he shouldn't get his jumbly girl? Is he sane enough to make a choice? In the end, the cat isn't sure what the right path was and wonders if he missed something in the final decision. Spoonifolia dove in with this. One of my favorite podcasts. Edward Lear's art is as old a friend to me as his poetry, and as soon as I heard Old Foss's name in the title, I was hoping for something equally dear and whimsical, ungainly and wonderful. This story delivered, and Graham's bittersweet reading was perfect. One thing bothered me, though. Except for Foss, the focus of Lear's most cherished relationship the one he pined for like the artist pined for the jumbly girl was another man. I know the artist in this story isn't supposed to match Lear in every respect, but I've seen enough queer historical figures de-queered in fiction to feel a little sad that this aspect of a very unconventional man was changed to something more conventional, expected, acceptable, both in his own time and ours. Oh, I did love the ending for the jumbly girl, though. Surrounded by the comfort and consolation of the other jumblies, 
And Foss's line about always being the old man's friend had me in tears even before the end. And I'm tearing up again typing this, damn it. If ever a story could be worthy of a cat, though I doubt most cats would allow for that possibility, this is it. Thank you, Boojums Are Cool, Unblinking, Dwango, and Spoonifolia, and everyone else who stopped by to comment. Keep coming back to let us know what you think of our stories. And for those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artist Forum at form.escapeartists.net. We'd love to hear from you. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Peace. Thanks, Kalita. And thanks, everyone, for your comments. Please stop by and let us know what you thought of today's story. And while you're there, consider making a donation. Every single cent goes to the creative geniuses, the authors and narrators who write and record these stories. And if you can't donate, consider giving PodCastle a boost on your social media network of choice. And that's our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at PodCastle, our slushers Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Jennifer Albert, and Melissa Hoflick, our audio producer Peter Wood, our forum moderators Talia and Asikat, our assistant editor Kalida, and your editors Graham Dunlap and Rachel K. Jones, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another thrilling episode. Until then, this is M.K. Hobson with a quote from Vince Lombardi. Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. Let the might of your compassion arise to bring a quick end to the flowing stream of the blood and tears. 